All right, who needs a Bible? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 12. I want you to be able to read it for yourself. So raise your hand and they will bring one right to you. Matthew chapter 12. You know, I just, he didn't even know I was going to ask him to sing that song. So the fact that the words showed up back there just shows you how good they are back there in the sound booth back there. <laughs> That's amazing. So we're in this series on all in, all in for Jesus, following Jesus without restraint. But today we're going to talk about how to be all out. It, it's kind of backwards, I realize, but you know, how can you ensure that you don't ever enter the kingdom of God? How, how, the answer is basically make yourself unable to repent. Get to the point where you've said no to God enough times in his spirit, knocking on the door of your heart, talking to you, talking to you, you just resist, 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 and pretty soon he stops bothering you. And you know, people actually get to that point because to be in the kingdom of God, one of the requirements, absolute requirements, is that you come to a point of repentance, of saying, I, I can't make it on my own. My life is broken. I have uh, sinned and fallen short of God's glory. I need to be made right with God. I can't do that myself. I need God's help. Without those kinds of, of thoughts, without that kind of humility and repentance, people will not be in heaven. And some people have reached the point where they just refuse to say anything like that. Well, Jesus is teaching. I like that in the song. I didn't pick it up the first time. But here, it, 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 uh, Florin was singing that uh, Jesus was teaching and doing miracles and making enemies. Did you catch that part? <laughs> and uh, Jesus has been doing that. He's surrounded here by the crowd, but he's got these Pharisees that he's been arguing with. And then verse 22 says of Matthew chapter 12, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And he healed him. So the man spoke and he saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? So now get, get the scene here. Jesus is doing his, his ministry. He's doing miracles. He's teaching the word of God. He's making enemies among the religious people, religious leaders. And they're threatened by Jesus. He's stealing their popularity and their power and their influence in, the, in people's uh, view. And Jesus comes, has brought this person who's a pretty pathetic person. He's blind. He's mute, he can't speak, and he's, he uh, uh, demon-possessed. I mean, somehow through his actions, his lashing out, his abusive behaviors, his screams, his monosyllabic grunts has convinced everybody that he's possessed by a demon. And we know that who Jesus is, he's God come in human flesh. And Jesus healed him by the power of God's Holy Spirit. The man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed. And they said, can this be the son of David? <clears throat> Now, this little healing story has the fewest details of anybody that Jesus healed. There's so many questions that it brings up. Where did he come from? Who brought him to Jesus? How did he happen to get this way? How could life uh, be so difficult like that? And on and on and on. We don't know because, you know, rather than being celebrated as an act of God in this world, this man has become a ping pong ball between Jesus and the Pharisees for the hearts and minds of the Jewish people. Because they are looking for, they are hoping for a hero. They are, they've been promised one for a long time. If you go back in the Bible right to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is creation. God creates the world. He creates a garden. He creates a man and a woman. He puts them in the garden. He gives them a choice. He says, you can go anywhere you want, but don't touch that one tree. Guess which tree had a path all the way around it? Yeah, the one they're not supposed to touch. And... Um, so pretty soon, uh, you have this perfect garden, you have these perfect people that God's created, and the devil is represented there as a serpent, and uh, he convinces them, you can't really trust God, why don't you try it? And they do, and sin enters the world, and death came in through sin. 
And God comes and he declares a judgment against uh, the devil and against uh, the people. And he also gives the first promise of a Savior. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, right at the beginning of the Bible, he's promising a Savior is going to come. There will be a day where there will be salvation. And uh, then as the centuries go by and the prophets show up, they add additional insights as to who that Savior will be and what the Messiah is going to be about. And finally, you come to David, who God raised up. He was the eighth child in his family, but God chose him and uh, made him a king. He ends up, uh, he was a warrior, and now he becomes royalty, and he becomes the greatest king that Israel ever had. God's hand was on his life, and uh, God was protecting him and guiding him and blessing him and leading him, and God used David time and again to deliver his people. And God promised that somebody from the line of David would be on the throne of David forever. That's a long time. And so this crowd is amazed when they see Jesus and they ask the question, can this be the son of David? And they're wondering if they're in the presence of another warrior king that can deliver them from oppression and fulfill the prophecies and save them. They're on the right track. And they're starting to cheer for Jesus. Have you ever gone to a sporting event or even maybe watched one on TV? You know, one of those exciting things like, um, well, I won't pick on anybody, but, you know, where you don't necessarily have a team when you go into it. You're going to see two competitors. Maybe they're playing, you know, tennis or darts or, um, uh, you know, something that... Uh, you want, or, uh, you know, boxing or wrestling or something. And as you watch them, you notice that one just seems to be working harder, has more stamina. Uh, maybe they aren't expected to win, but uh, one of the fighters so impresses you that you choose sides and you begin to cheer for him. You even change sides. I and mean, that's what's happening here. The Pharisees, you see, are threatened because along comes Jesus. And these Pharisees love their positions of leadership and influence with the people. And they're already alarmed with Jesus' popularity. And they're, will, they're willing to do anything they need to to put him down and they're, they're to keep the crowd on their side. But the power that Jesus demonstrated right here in the healing of this um, man who was mute and blind and demon-possessed. I mean, no person in the world could have handled that situation and done the miracle that Jesus did. Clearly, the power of God was on his life. Or was it the power from the devil? I mean, the devil wields a certain amount of power in this world, but they're asking the question, could this be the son of David? Is this the guy that's been promised for thousands of years now? And the people are thinking, maybe Jesus is the Messiah. He's powered by God. And if Jesus is connected to God to do this miracle, uh, more than the Pharisees are connected, which is what the miracle would indicate, then the crowd is quickly changing sides. So the Pharisees have to do some quick, quick thinking. What are we going to do? Are we going to praise God for his huge miracle in this life uh, that has uh, demonstrated that God is among us and helped this poor, unfortunate man and that God's power is flowing through Jesus? Or are we going to ignore the miracle, think up something quick to divert attention away from Jesus as God's agent? So the Pharisees accused Jesus of doing this miracle by using the devil's power. Verse 24, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, huh, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, Beelzebub, Satan, the evil one, the devil, they're all the same entity. And the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of being from the evil one, powered by the devil. It's absurd. It could not be further from the truth. They certainly didn't get this from God. So... We want to look at if you're going to be all out, then you need to misunderstand the battle. 
that you and I, to this day, there is a war going on between good and evil, and it uses our world as, as its battlefield. And you have to pick a side because a huge fight's going on. Which side are you going to be on? And by not choosing, you are deciding, you are picking. Verse 25, in response, it says, to knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them. See, Jesus has God's power, so people standing around them, he knows what they're thinking. He's responding to their thoughts. He says to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's saying your sons are, in other words, people who are part of your Pharisee group. Maybe it's your sons or your students, and you think of them as your kids. And some of them had actually practiced exorcism of demons and had used God's power to do it. And so Jesus, I mean, he's blasting a hole in their logic. Satan isn't divided against himself. He doesn't cast himself out. Satan has never once done something that was helpful or good for people in this world. And these Pharisees just don't want to admit the obvious, that Jesus is powered by the Spirit of God himself. He has the hand of God's blessing on his life. God's Spirit is leading and guiding him. If they admitted that, they would have known that they would have had to change their life. They'd have had to humble themselves and not take the place of, of honor. They'd have had to repent of their sin and their pride and ask God to forgive them. They would have had to recognize God's messenger was in their midst and treat him with honor and respect. Jesus says, but if I have done this miracle by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And you're at a juncture. What are you going to do? You have to decide. Are you with me or are you against me? Not to decide is to decide. You don't have forever. Which side are you on? Jesus goes on to ask her, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. <clears throat> Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Evil is real. And Jesus is opposed to it. And you do not have the luxury of neutrality. And Jesus says, decide, are you with me? If not, you're against me in this great struggle. So it's care, we need to be careful not to misunderstand the battle that we have to decide. Christ is the, is the side that will be victorious in the end. doesn't always look like he's winning, but we know he's going to in the end. Which side are you on? Sometimes we can misinterpret the power. Look what Jesus tells them. Verse 31. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite name for himself, will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, what's he talking about? Well, let's review a little bit. We believe that God is a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And um, we are not in the minority, we're not in the majority in America on that, by the way, because we believe that all three have always existed as God. And 80% of the people, according to Christianity Today, did a survey. 80% of, of Americans think that Jesus was God's first and greatest creation, like Jesus was created. And 6 out of 10 Americans think that the Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being. Well, 
the Bible says that he's a spirit and that the Holy Spirit was alive, a person, was alive and well, well before Pentecost. I mean, he shows up early in the Bible. And, you know, there are branches of the church that talk more about the Holy Spirit than, than we generally do. We celebrate God the Father who's in heaven and Jesus who's his son who came into this world and, and lived and died and rose again. But we don't seem to get around to talking as much about the Holy Spirit. Maybe because we're overreacting to, to groups who emphasize it a great deal or, or perhaps because we don't always understand how the Spirit works. So we don't talk about him as much. You know, we're, we're confused or fearful. But the Holy Spirit has been part of the picture since the very beginning of time. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then look at verse 2. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. So the Holy Spirit is God. And he's been around since the beginning. In fact, he assisted in creation. And so we call them the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings God into our heads and into our hearts in, and into our lives. It's kind of like the glue that connects us to God. He's present with us, and God makes, he makes God accessible to us. He's the one taking the truth and ta- of God and tapping on the door of your heart and saying, hey, psst, did you hear that? Will you think about it a little bit? Have you seen the power of God at work? Isn't it time you responded in faith? I mean, the Holy Spirit guides and corrects and encourages and draws us to him. It's kind of like if you were going to paint this room and you had the paint and you realized, wow, I have a screwdriver to open the can, but I, I need an applicator. I need a brush or a roller. Right? The brush or the roller is like the Holy Spirit. He applies God's truth to our lives. Otherwise, you're just slinging the bucket of the paint. You know, it's not going to work right. And, and so he, that's his job, is he applies it to us. And as he applies it, a lot of people resist that. Oh, no, I don't need that. I don't need that. I don't need that. I don't need that. And so Jesus is saying, if you blaspheme against the Son, you say something uh, you know, negative about Jesus, that's one thing. But to constantly just ignore, resist, 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 the Holy Spirit, at some point, the Holy Spirit finally says, okay, and no longer pursues us. So what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, Wayne Gruden wrote a whole book, Systematic Theology, and it has a whole chapter on this. And he says, quote, the work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world, and especially in the church. You say, that's a good quote. It's actually in your notes up on page three, up at the top in the little dark box, if you were looking on page three. Uh, The work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. So the Holy Spirit, I'm going to name four things. Number one, the Holy Spirit empowers. He gives life. Jesus was talking to a Pharisee that's named in the Bible. It's in John 3. His name was Nicodemus. He was actually one of the leaders of the Pharisees. And he comes to Jesus, and Jesus says to him, you must be born again. He goes, how does that work? And Jesus says to him, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, I say, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. You and I need to be born of God's Spirit. God's Spirit comes, and he He brings God's truth our way and we hear the little knock on the door and we can decide, do I ignore it? Do I resist it? Do I open the door and invite him in? And the Spirit empowers God's people for special service. It's all through the Bible. 
when the people were leaving uh, captivity in Egypt and uh, out in the desert and they were making the tabernacle, the Bible says that God's Spirit empowered craftsmen, people working in silver and gold and in wood and in art. And when it got to Joshua, it talks about that God's Spirit empowered his leadership skills and... Um, gave him wisdom. And then along come the judges. And over and over it says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon this one or that one. And then when David was anointed by Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, it says Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The whole idea that, that suddenly just the Spirit just came upon you and you were dead, but then you come alive. In fact, Isaiah talks about in 11, chapter 11, it says, There shall come forth a root from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. All those things are what the Spirit of God gives, wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and fear. And then when Jesus arrived... When he preached his first sermon, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then when Jesus met with his disciples just before he left the earth, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You know, if you go car shopping, you can look around in the car lot, you can sit in the car, but what they really want to do is get you behind the wheel out on the road, don't they? You know why? Because that's where you sense the power. Other than that, it's just a car just sitting there. You don't know if there's even anything under the hood. But when you get out there and you turn it on and there's power and you can push it down the road, then you feel that power. You go, oh, I just got to have this. Right? And so the Holy Spirit empowers us. We're, we're just dead. We're idle. We're, we're standing still until he leads and guides and gets us doing the things that God wants us doing in this world. That's part of his job is to empower his people. The second thing is the Holy Spirit purifies. Jesus explained this in John 16. When he, the helper, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, you'll see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. He convicts us of sin. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul said, Some of you were unrighteous sinners, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. It's by the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body. It's by the Spirit that we grow in personal holiness. In fact, in Romans 8, Paul said, if, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if you live by the Spirit, you'll put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons or the children of God. For if you did not receive the spirit of adoption to fall back into fear, you've received the spirit of adoptions as sons or as children by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I'm having kind of fun this weekend because my darling daughter brought our two grandchildren down from Oregon. So, of course, that means everybody has to get together. So I'm on the beach this weekend with three one-year-olds who have never ridden a wave before. <laughs> I really only took one at a time because they didn't have a clue what was coming, you know. And uh, so it's delightful. Well, that's how God feels about us. 
that we're his children and he delight in them, but we don't become his child unless we respond to his voice that it comes through the Spirit. That's the Spirit's job is to draw us into relationship and to have, begin to get that God's life in us so then we're growing in him and we grow that what's called the fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Spirit purifies our lives, pulls out the things that are uh, not of God and helps us to grow towards God. So if you look at your own life and go, it's not really growing like that. I, I don't see what you're talking about. Maybe it's time to go back and check to say, is Jesus my Savior and my Lord? Have I put him in charge? Or have I been ignoring and resisting and pushing away from his voice? Why not just say yes? The Holy Spirit purifies. The Holy Spirit also reveals the truth. In 2 Peter 1.21, it says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's his job, is to reveal the truth. John 16 says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He won't speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that come basically from God. Holy Spirit is like the wind. I mean, you don't see it, but you see its effect in your life. And when it's moving. And that's what happened on Pentecost. It says, suddenly there was from heaven a sound like a mighty wind, a rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting and it divided as tongues of fire appeared resting on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They began to share the good news in multiple languages so that everybody could hear. And then it goes on and talks about in 1 Corinthians how God gifts everybody. When, when people respond to God's Spirit, then God showers gifts on them. And we can see in 2 Corinthians that the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is unity and peace and working together. So he reveals his truth. And then the Spirit unifies, pulls people together as one body. So what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? The Bible talks about grieving the Holy Spirit or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Well, grieving the Holy Spirit is in Ephesians 4, 29 to 31. It says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. According to this verse... Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice are the kinds of things that grieve the Holy Spirit when we treat the world that way or we treat each other that way because we've gotten our feelings hurt or our, our dreams dashed or somebody stepped on our toes somehow or did something we didn't like. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, John Piper was writing at this. Here's what he said, quote, The unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an act of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that he withdraws forever with his convicting power so that we are never able to repent and be forgiven. I think it is a final act. I kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. But I think before that is that whole, this whole resisting thing. It's not a one-time thing. It's resistance over and over, rejecting, a repeating pattern where we're just saying no, no, no. And finally, God, Spirit says, okay, be on your way. And he withdraws himself from us, which we don't realize at the time prevents us from ever being drawn to God or having an opportunity to repent. 
so that people who are alive can actually push God off so many times that God's Spirit finally says, okay then. Do you remember when you were in a period of your life where you were looking to answer the question, who am I going to spend my life with? You were looking for that special someone. You, you know, you were reaching out to people, asking people out on dates, maybe even you know, got things going, you were courting, and you were looking for clues. Is this person open to a relationship? Do they, do, do they love me like I love, love her or him? I mean, I told you about the, the girl that I met in high school that we only had one thing in common. We both loved her. And so... <laughs> It didn't really work. All right, but, you know, sometimes it's hard for a young man because he doesn't know, is she playing hard to get? She just wants to know how much I really, really, really like her a lot, love her? Or is she really saying, just get lost? Because those look very, very similar for a period of time, you know? And, and, and I got fooled by this. I was in college, and I reached out to somebody. We went out several times, and then I invited her to go to my grandma's house for a weekend in Hemet. We're going to take my grandma to the Ramona pageant that year. And... So we went, and my grandma fell in love with this girl. The girl helped in the kitchen. She was always nice. She helped do the dishes afterwards. And she said to her, you should take this girl seriously. So I'm on the way home. We're riding in the back seat. Somebody else is driving. Put my arm around her. She seems to snuggle in. I'm getting ready to give her a kiss. And right as I'm you know, leaning in for the kiss, she turns her head, and I hit her in the cheek or in the ear. And it wasn't quite what I was expecting or what she was expecting, I guess. So I took that as a no. And we never went out again. I mean, this isn't a joke, you know, understand? Um, but people who do this with the Holy Spirit, you're kind of uncomfortable, huh? I, I, I don't know. I got over it, so you can too. Um, <laughs> but people who do that with the Holy Spirit, they play along, they play along, they reject his advances in his life. He only takes so much rejection, and then he backs away. I mean, what would you say to a grandpa who said, you know, I have 10 grandchildren, they've all become Christians, and every one of them has asked me, do you love Jesus? And I tell them no. And finally, I know a couple of those grandkids finally said to him, well, then you're going to hell. And he kind of laughs them off. We can have warning after warning after warning, but you can only reject the Holy Spirit so long, and you don't know exactly when that moment is. There's a story like this in the Bible of a young man who was blessed from before he was born. An angel showed up to his mom and dad and said, God needs a, an agent in this world. It's going to be your son. He will be a Nazarite as unto the Lord. And he will be extremely strong. And God's spirit will be on him and leading and guiding his, his actions to overthrow the enemy. And he is not to have any uh, alcohol or strong drink. And he's not to ever cut his hair because he's, he's dedicated to God. And as long as you do that, God's spirit will be on him. His name was Samson. He was so strong, he thought he didn't have to obey any of the rules. So he flirted with disaster over and over. And if you track the story, he's supposed to be about things that are holy and righteous and clean. And instead, he's doing things that are unclean, like picking up a, a donkey bone to beat on the enemies with, like dealing with a dead carcass of an animal, like taking up with a prostitute among the enemy. And at some point, she got the secret out of him and had his hair cut. And here was a man who had had all this strength, who could just bust through any ropes, who, could, who could, uh, had uh, superior abilities because of God's Spirit on him. Suddenly, he had given way to sin. His hair had been cut. 
His power was gone. He's asleep on her lap, and she wakes him up. Hey, 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 your enemies, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And this is in Judges 16. He awoke from his sleep, and he said, I'll go out as other times, shake myself free. And then one of the saddest phrases in the Bible, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. He toyed with this so long. Went on to say the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with brown shackles. He never knew what that moment was when the Spirit finally withdrew and said, okay. I mean, the Pharisees that Jesus is talking to here in the story have studied the Scripture like nobody's business, but it's all head knowledge. Be careful. Some of you, you know, you've gone to Sunday school for years. You've gone to a small group or a growth group for years, but we run the same risk that the Pharisees, that we keep it all in our head. We apply none of it in our heart, and we don't say, God, what are you trying to tell me to change to become more like you? Or we hear his little voice saying, hey, you need to change this or that, and we just say, yeah, I'll do that later, or I don't like that plan. Or I'll do it my way. And we resist. And Jesus said, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in this age to come. And God sent Jesus into this world because he loves everybody, including the Pharisees that were harassing him. And they've given their minds to study God's word. They had disciplined their habits to live by God's law. But then they let their pride swell with their knowledge and their power. So when confronted by God himself, they're so impressed with themselves that they just reject God. And God's spirit that has tugged at their hearts and been rejected and tugged at their heart and been rejected and tugged at their heart and been rejected just stopped tugging. And so then repentance and forgiveness became out of reach. They were all out and didn't even know it. So we need to be sure not to be like that. I mean, recently we had a, a mom that passed away, and she had shared Christ with her son over and over and over and over. And as a boy, he had known about Jesus. He had memorized lots of verses, but he had walked away in his youth, and his mom continued to pray for him and to reach out for him. When she's on her deathbed, he got a phone call. He said, your mom's not going to live very long. He said, well, there won't be any deathbed conversion. And I don't have anything to say to her, and I don't think she has anything to say to me. That's pretty harsh. How do you go all out? Well, he's on the right track. If you want to go all out, you make yourself unable to repent. I would rather be those who do nothing in our own strength because we're fully devoted followers and we follow Jesus, powered by God's Spirit. That God's Spirit reaches out to us so we come to know our need of a Savior and He gives us opportunity to repent. And God's Spirit comes alive in our hearts and invites us in to, to grow to become, we invite Him in to grow to become like Jesus. And, and He empowers us to do the ministry. And when He whispers little things in our ear of things we need to give up so that we can go up to walk closer to Him, we just do that. so that we're empowered by God's Spirit. Shall we pray? Dear Jesus, I thank you that we can be among your people who have responded to your Spirit. I thank you that your Spirit can be here among us, that you would touch each of us in our heart. Now, today I pray that you would lead us from here fully more aware that it's serious about how we 
take your warnings, your words to us, and that we not reject you or just blow you off, that we listen to your voice and that we follow you in obedience. Thank you. Amen. God bless you.